Good morning, everyone. If you would, go and open up your Bibles to John chapter 11. This will be our second sermon in John chapter 11. It is a very long chapter, and it's a big, one large story, one big narrative. So it is kind of difficult to divide up into multiple sermons. And, and before I go on, if you are in the foyer and you'd like to sit in the main auditorium, we do have uh, several seats up front uh, to my left. You're welcome to come on in at any time. Uh, John chapter 11. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 16. And of course, this is a very common story. We know it quite well. Uh, but uh, Jesus has left Jerusalem. We find that at the end of John chapter 10. Uh, they were wanting to kill him once again. So he goes away and he's about three and a half to four days journey away and he's there for most estimations are about two to three months uh, and we see some time stamps there also we have that feast of dedication that was going on at the end of chapter 10 where Jesus left and we also see that when he comes back this is the the process to the crucifixion. He has gone away from the Jews who are hostile, but he gets this invitation to come back, and he'll be really close to Jerusalem, and uh, those Jews will be coming after him soon. But while Jesus is there, he gets message from a family that he knows very dearly uh, as the family of Mar Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, all siblings, that Lazarus is extremely ill and so ill that he could be dying. And uh, they get that message. And with that message, Jesus says that this this illness is for the glory of God. And we covered that quite a bit. And not only for the glory of God, but specifically for the glory of the Son. And now, they don't know what all is happening yet. We can, of course, fast forward, and we know the end of the story in John chapter 11. But it was interesting, and we camped out on that for a moment, kind of like we did in John chapter 9, with the man that was born blind. And the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. It's for the glory of God. And so we looked at how sickness and uh, things even such as Paul lists, calamities and tragedy, tragedies, uh, body, bodily ailments, uh, pain and suffering, that God can use all of these things for his glory. And that he intentionally gave Paul a, a, a thorn in his side is what he called it. He did pray for God to take it away. God said no. So he said, okay, I'm okay with this. So it's really fascinating as we look at some of these stories, a man born blind for the glory of God. You have Lazarus here whose illness is for the glory of God as well. So we'll spend a time looking at suffering and how to handle suffering. We think of people like Job who suffered greatly, but God used that suffering and the process of it to lead to higher, greater sanctification, uh, where he starts off the book of Job, the most righteous man on earth, and he ends the book of Job even more righteous. Uh, but what happened in between? Lots of heartache, lots of pain, lots of suffering, and lots of boils on his skin even, right? All for the glory of God. So interesting. We spent some time on that. Uh, but today we're going to be in verse 17 and we'll read through verse 37. So let's look at that today. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. 
And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet... Sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here call, and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, have you laid, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the word to look at today, to meditate on, to focus on. And uh, God, may we, may we see the importance of it in our lives. May we see the doctrine that is espoused here today. May we apply it to our lives. May we see the beauty that the one that we trust in for our salvation is indeed the resurrection and the life. And that all who believe in him, even though they die, they will live. And that we do have eternal life. We are in bodies that are fading, bodies that are going away, bodies that will all die one day, but yet we have eternal life. These are deep things to contemplate, deep things to consider, but it is a beautiful thing. Help us to be like Paul who looked forward today to the day that he was with Christ in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, all right, so verse 17, again, a lot of story here that we're going to cover today. Going back to verse 17, it just says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. That was the total amount of the journey probably is what we expect here. Jesus announced that he was dead before he left. He said he has fallen asleep and later he clarifies he has died and then the journey begins. And it's amazing but the, the commentarians and theologians estimate that the average person walking in and trying to get somewhere quickly in those days would usually walk 40 miles per day. And uh, so it was around that distance that they traversed and on day four he arrived. And it is significant because at this point there would be a lot of deterioration of the body that has already begun. There is no embalming process with the Jewish culture at that time. Uh, it is not cool. It's a hot environment. And even as 
that we find out later in the story, decomposition would have already set in where they did not want the stone removed because the smell would be coming out. All right. So day four is when he arrives on the scene. Look at verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And here we just find out, it's not, it's not a earth-shattering information, but we do find out geographically that, of course, Jesus and the disciples have gotten closer. And if you remember, in the previous passage, um, uh, Lazarus has died. And what does Thomas say? He says, let us go so that we may die with him. And what he meant by that is going back to Jerusalem is a death sentence. We left there because they were trying to kill you. Now we're going back. And not only is it going to be a death sentence for Jesus, but this time Thomas is saying, if Jesus dies, I die. Like I will die with him. I will do whatever he says. I'll go wherever he goes. So he says, let us go die with Lazarus, meaning let's go back to Jerusalem and and so here you see John hinting at there is going to be hostility because the, many of the Jews were so close. It's actually a little less than two miles away from Jerusalem. Many of those Jews are coming out and they're going to get word back that Jesus, hey, the one that you guys are wanting to stone is here. And we find out later in the story some of those who hated Jesus were also there giving their condolences to Martha and Mary. Uh, but let's go on down to verse 20. <clears throat> so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She sent and uh, went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, we, we speculate here to some degree that most likely the messenger had given the message to Jesus and the disciples. His job was done. As they kind of got things ready to depart, the messenger came back. So most likely the messenger has, has come back. He's announcing, announced to Martha that the Lord is coming. She does not wait. She wants to go see him right away. She goes out to him. And in verse 21... It is not a complaint. Some people kind of read this as she is complaining to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But it doesn't really come across that way at all. It's just stating facts. Martha and Mary had been there when he had performed previous miracles, signs. They had seen the healings before. And they knew that if Jesus was present, he could have healed Lazarus. And he would not have died. And that, that's kind of all that is being said. They, they know who he is. They know he can heal the sick. They, can, they know he can do such a thing. In verse 22, uh, she acknowledges the close relationship there with, with God the Father, and that whatever Jesus asks, it does happen. It is 100%. But at the same time, verse 22, uh, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Again, some people speculate she's thinking that he is going to raise him from the dead. But we really don't have that in the context. Uh, if you go down to verse 39 and just look at verse 39, even though we'll get there next week. But look where verse, verse 39, we see her statement. Uh, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. And there's no expectation that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. Even in the next passage, we'll read here uh, verse 23 and verse 24. So this is this is going to be shocking to her as well. She's not saying if you'd have been here, you could have raised, you could have healed him. But since you weren't here, I need you to go raise him from the dead. That's not what's being put out there. She does have faith in Jesus. She's seen him heal, knows who he is, uh, absolutely. And we find also 
that Jesus is very tight with his family. Multiple times uh, the relationship is expressed in love, like Jesus loved Martha, he loved Mary, he loved Lazarus, and it's a, a very tight relationship that we have. That's not explored in the Gospels greatly, but we do see that Jesus had close uh, earthly connections. Look at verse 23 and 24. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And here we find out absolutely that, that she is not expecting him to rise right then. Because Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she doesn't say, I know, now get to it, or anything like that, right? She's like, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Uh, and this is interesting to think on. We looked at this somewhat last week as well as we began this. But what happens when a Christian does die? I mean, I don't want to state the obvious, but how many of you will eventually die, right? All right so it's important to know uh, where you're going to go and what's going to happen to you after you die. And we find out from, from looking at Paul last week that he knew exactly what would happen, that he would be in the presence of Christ, and that it would be a gain. And it was such a gain, such a wonderful, great gain, that he desired to go be with Christ. But at the same time, he wanted to remain in body so he could work for Christ and work for the people that he loved and minister to them. But for him, it was going to be a great gain. He was going to immediately be in the presence of Christ. And, uh, and we, we see that with ourselves as well. So we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt if you have been saved by Jesus who is the Christ who is God in the flesh who has paid for your sins you have been saved from sin you have been saved from death you've been saved from the wrath and curse of God and so you don't you don't go anywhere except into the presence of God and there is no purgatory as a fictitious place that was created years ago where you go to and then you get better until you're good enough to get to heaven that's not it you're not saved by works now you're not saved by works later. You're saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And that's it. And that's it alone. And where it, so it comes down to is your name in the Lamb's book of life, right? Is the one that you have faith in, the one who is the author of life, who is the resurrection and the life. So we know we trust in the one who is the resurrection and the life, that we go immediately into the presence of God. And this is covered in a lot of places, but let's look at, um, uh, look over at 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter, this is the greatest discourse on what happens to us and our bodies and, and the new bodies that we will have one day, even though so much of that is a mystery that we just cannot wrap our minds around it. But we know that if, if, if a believer falls dead today. They go into the presence of Christ. It is a wonderful, great gain. But we also know that there would probably be a funeral service if there were people around and that person would be buried or possibly cremated or whatever happens to happen to that body. Uh, what is going to happen later, though, that is there's going to be a, the last day that Martha refers to here where all bodies of believers will be raised and reunited with their soul. And Paul talks a lot about that in 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have time to teach all of that today. It's such a long chapter there as well. But I just want you to see the, uh, the assurance that he has, the confidence that he has in this great resurrection that is going to happen. Uh, we're just going to read verse 12 through 19 today. I think I have you looking at some of it in your discipleship today. But look at 12 through 19, 1 Corinthians 15. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And even if, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Wow. So here Paul is, there is a, if, and you're familiar with this maybe from Acts 23, uh, but there's a difference in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and that had invaded much of the Jewish culture. Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisee, uh, Sadducees did not. That's why they were Sadducee. Joke. Ta-ta. Boom. Okay. All right. So they did not believe. That's how you can kind of remember that little note, though. All right. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because you look what Paul says here. And they would have every reason to be sad. And you would too if you were a Christian. Some believers, uh, I heard, you've probably heard something like this before, but a believer was asked, you know, what if there's not a heaven? Is it worth living like you are? And many of us say, oh, absolutely. Paul says, no, we're to be pitied <laughs> if there is no heaven. He says, look, look, look back at verse 14. Look how negative he speaks of those who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. He says, our preaching is in vain. That vain means useless. It's a waste. If you're preaching and, and there's no resurrection of the dead and this life is everything, it's a total waste. He's talking about his, his gospel presentations, presenting the gospel. Why even do it if you're not saved for eternity, if you're not saved from your sins, if there's no resurrection of the dead? He says, our preaching, the gospel presentation is in vain if there's no resurrection, and your faith is in vain. It's all useless. It's a total waste, he says, if there is no resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So he ties our future resurrection from the dead uh, to Christ's resurrection from the dead. And, and so they're, they're tied together. They're linked so much that if you believe there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not even been raised. And if Christ hasn't been even raised, then you're still in your sins. So he, tie, he says it, it's preposterous. So for, I want you to gather from this as he has 100% absolute assurance that not only, as Philippians 1.23 would say, to, to be with Christ and would be great gain, but also that one day the body will be resurrected and joined with the soul as Jesus was uh, upon his resurrection from the dead. So great confidence there. We have this confidence as well. We know there is resurrection from the dead. The gospel is worth preaching because there's resurrection from the dead. Uh, we, sh we do have faith that is not futile because Christ did rise from the dead and that's where our faith is in. Uh, should we be pitied? 
Uh, well, you should if you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, he says. So we, our faith is not only for this life, but our faith looks forward to being in heaven. We look forward as Paul did, or as Abraham said in Hebrews chapter 11, they looked forward to where they were going. They knew they were sojourners, visitors, passing through in this life on to an eternal kingdom. So that's the confidence that we should have as well. Look at verse 25. Here Jesus makes one of the great I am statements. This will be the fifth I am statement that he makes here. He says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is tremendous because she, she has just said, I know that my, my dead brother will rise on the last day. And then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's a huge statement because she's acknowledging that God is going to raise him on the last day. But then what does Jesus do? He says, I am. He uses that ego eme from, from uh, Exodus chapter 3. I am. He uses the name for God in applying to himself. I am that resurrection. I am the one who brings to life. I am the one who raises from the dead, right? So she believes that her brother will rise on the last day. Jesus says, I am the one. I am that resurrection who brings them to life, who will bring him to life, who will bring you to life as well. So there's seven statements that we find there in the book of John that, that, that are in this formula, this, this type of shape here. And what I mean by that is you have a predicate with the I am. And you'll see what I mean. There are other I am statements. I'll mention that just briefly today. But the first one. Over in John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And uh, I'm just going to kind of go through these briefly. I don't have time to go back and preach each and every one of those. But you see that he'll use the name uh, that I am there, that name given to Moses when God said, or Moses told, asked God, who shall I say is sending me? He says, tell them, I am. I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. So this is what Jesus uses here. He says, I am the bread of life. Uh, number two, he says, I am the light of the world. Number three, he says, I am the door. Number four, Jesus goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. And then today we have, I am the resurrection and the life. And these other two, I'm going to throw them in here today just for bonus points, even though we're not there yet. But uh, you'll be familiar with them when we get to them. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally in John 15, 5, I am the vine. Now, when Jesus says these things, he says, I am, and then the predicate comes, he is saying that he is the ultimate fulfillment of the, this. So a lot of times what is mentioned next is a type and shadow of the Old Testament. But he's saying, I am exclusively and ultimately this, right? And uh, oftentimes he even... Uh, has a, a miracle that accompanies it to drive the home, drive the point home any further. Almost like a, I say I am this, and also let me prove it to you to some degree. So if you take just a few of those, you take go back. If you think of I am the bread of life, uh, what happened before he makes that statement? He had just fed somewhere around twenty thousand people bread and fed them. Right? He multiplied the fish, multiplied the loaves, fed them. They had twelve baskets left over this miracle happens then they come begging to him for more food he's like no you're you're wanting the wrong food i am the bread of life uh, your fathers ate from the bread that came down from heaven uh, that was given to them manna but i am the bread of life eat of me and you'll have eternal life so you see that type 
fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. Here's a shadow, the manna. The substance ultimately is the Christ. It is God in the flesh. I am. Believe in me. Uh, similarly, if you take, uh, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. He announces that he is the light of the world. That light of the world ties in closely to the feast that was going on there at the time, the Feast of Tabernacles, where they had uh, cultural symbolism with the lights that would be, the light that would be, uh, show them the way during the book of Exodus, and they would raise the big candelabras up, and there would be the light. But also in John 9, you see that he opens a man's eyes who have been in darkness all of his life, who, is in, who has been born blind. And you see him say, I am the light of the world, and let me show you that. I'm going to make this man who has never seen light see light. But what is the greater there? Uh, Jesus did not come to be an optometrist, right? The greater is, is it salvation. I, you, I, I am the light of the world. Look to me. And so you see the miracles accompany some of these and drive the home, uh, home to the point even further. And that leads us to today's, I am the resurrection and the life. So he not only says this. And announces it to Martha. Martha said, yes, I know my brother will rise on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he could have left it there. And, and she would have believed that. It does look like. But he drives it home even further and provides this miracle that validates that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Now, um, look at a, a few other times the I am statements come up. So I don't want to say that as you go through the book of John, you'll see more than these seven. But these seven have that, uh, that I am followed by the predicate like that. Uh, but other times we looked at John eight fifty eight as well. And Jesus simply says on this one, before Abraham was, I am. And what happens there? They pick up stones to kill him. Why do they pick up stones to kill him? Because he, he stops it right there. He takes that on himself before Abraham was, I am. He's not saying, even though Abraham preceded him over a thousand years, that he's older than Abraham. They wouldn't have put him to death for being extremely old. What they're saying, he is saying is, I am. Am. It's, he's taking on that name of God there, all right? So they pick up stones to throw him. So the, Jesus uses the I am statement multiple, multiple times, more than the seven of the I am statements there is my point in the book of John. Now look what else he says in verse 25. He goes on to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now this is huge. Because hopefully this is you and me. And if it's not, uh, it needs to be today. Uh, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So speaking to believers like we are today, if you believe in Christ, though you die, as we will, yet shall you live. And look at verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's been said the greatest fear of mankind is facing death. It's so fearful that some people spend, waste many of their years, many of their days in fear of facing death because they don't know what lies beyond, right? It's, it's, it's to a degree it's unknown, and they don't know what's going to happen to them. But here, Jesus gives great comfort. A Christian can live confidently in this life with no fear of death. 
uh, knowing that they continue to live after death. And even beyond no fear of death, this is an interesting point to think on, uh, Christians can even look forward to it in a healthy way. Because that's what we see Paul doing, right? Uh, Paul has faced much in this life. He longs for being with Christ in heaven. He knows it is great gain. And so you have Christians who we not only have to live with no fear of death, knowing why do we have no fear of death? Because we know we don't die and go in the ground and that's the end of us. We know to be absent from the bodies, to be present with Christ. We know it is great gain. We know that our bodies will rise again one day as well. We have complete comfort as Jesus comforts his disciples in John chapter 14. I'm going away, but I'm going to go there to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to bring you with me where I am going. So we know this to be true, so we have absolute confidence, even though there is this mystery, of course, that we don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but we can trust that it is going to be great gain, and it's going to be far greater than what we have here. And you can even read that 1 Corinthians 15 in more detail if you'd like to. It gives a, a little bit more description of that. Uh, but Paul looked forward to that day. He looked forward to going to heaven. Was it because he was morbid or had a love of death? And it's the opposite. He had a love of life and a love of being with Christ, and he knew at that moment of death, when his body stopped working, he would be living in the presence of Christ. So he looked forward to that. So my, my point is, don't have an unhealthy fatuation with dying, right? Uh, but you want to live and make the most of this life. You do not get to witness to people in heaven. Uh, you don't get to, to evangelize in heaven. There's so many things you don't get to do that you do here. Paul desired to stay here to gospelize, to evangelize, to minister to people because that's what he was here to do. But he looked forward to the day he would be with Christ. Uh, do people get second chances to believe in Jesus after death? Look back at verse 26. Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So we see the connection here of believing and living that they shall never die in that order. So it's a, it's a it's a bad deception that many people have that they believe that they will they know they're sinners. People know they've sinned against God, but they think that they will die and then get a second chance after death. And Jesus is very clear here: those who live and believe never die. But there is not a death, and then you have a second chance, then you can believe. We don't find that to be true at all. Multiple places we could go to. But Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So we find here that the, the death is, is, is the solidifying the gavel has dropped and you're either dying in your sins or without your sins and there is the judgment there is no second chance after that even when the books are opened up at the end of the book of revelation we find the books are open and they are judged according to their works while they did while they were alive and no one gets a second chance those who are judged are then cast into uh, the fire and then the lamb's book of life is open 
opened up, those who believe in the Christ, the Lamb, who's been sacrificed for their sin, their works are not looked at or judged like that, and they're entering into heaven based on the Lamb's work, based on the Lamb's sacrifice. So the point is, this is final. It's a point of the time for a man to die. After that, there is judgment. Uh, John eight twenty four. just another cross-reference there. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And this is another one of the I am statements. It's not in the exact formula with the predicate, but I am He. I am God. I am that one. So what do you have to do? You must believe in Him unless, or unless you will die in your sins. So you die with those sins, you die in those sins, and there is no second chance. All right. So what does this mean? You must believe while you are alive. And if you're debating anything like this, well, one day, uh, maybe after death, I'll change my mind. I'll see what how it turns out. I'm going to see what happens after I die. That's too late. You must be alive in order to believe. All right. Uh, let's uh, go back to John 11:26, and I want you to see. How he ends this. He's, I am the resurrection and the life and, and, and the living and believing and, and not dying. And we saw that. But then look how he ends it. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. Uh, and the, what is the this that he is talking about? Do you believe this? So if you look back at verse 25, there's pretty, pretty simple. I am the resurrection and the life. He goes on, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he says, do you believe this? So it's, it's not just asking, do you believe that Lazarus is going to rise on the last day? But he is asking, do you believe in me? Is this personal faith, personal trust in who I am. I am the resurrection and life. Do you believe that I am God? Do you believe that I'm the author of life? Do you believe the one that, that I am the one responsible for the resurrection of the dead? Do you believe that you must believe in me to have this eternal life? So it's a, it's a big question. Do you believe this? Again, not just that I'm going to raise Lazarus on the last day, that Lazarus will be raised on the last day, but do you believe in me? And her answer could have been as simple as yes, and that could have been it. But instead, we have this wonderful statement from Martha. Look at verse 27. She says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, her, her statement is, and we'll get to some other statements here in a moment, but her statement is a, a tremendous theological packing in of a statement. She's drawing from here, here, and here, and saying not just yes, but she expounds that yes and bestows upon him great titles that are beautiful. She starts off saying, yes, Lord. I mean, she could have said, yes, Jesus. She, she knows him, but she says, yes, Lord, showing that she is in full submission to him and that he is in authority over her. So she begins, yes, Lord. That's the title number one. Next, she says, Christ, right? She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are 
the Christ. And this is huge. This is tremendous, especially as the Jews were looking for that anointed one who was going to come. The last prophecies in the Old Testament were about the Messiah that was going to come and the one that was going to announce him. We get to the New Testament and now God has sent the Christ who is God and man. And this is the Messiah. So she says, yes, I believe you are the Lord. I submit to you. And yes, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. She goes on, says, the son of God. And here she rightly believes that Jesus is more than a man, that he is God. He is the son of God. And throughout the book of John, we keep noticing this, that the deity, the godness of Jesus is emphasized throughout. And that those who believe in Jesus truly for salvation, they must believe this. As John 8, 8, uh, 8, 58 said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so Jesus, is, uh, John is making that point. You get all the way through the end of, to the end of the book of John, and John lays that great statement out there that these are written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So here she gives this great profession of faith. You are the Lord. You are Christ. You are the Son of God. And then she says, who is coming into the world. This is another way of saying that Jesus is far more than human, that this is the one who is sent from God. You think back to like a John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He sent his only begotten son, right? So he, this is the one who is coming into the world. So she could have just said yes and moved right along, but instead she puts lots of meat to her answer. It's really fascinating. The thing, the thing on this, how do you speak of Jesus to others today? Uh, whether that's your workplace or people that you know or your family, do you just use the word Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. All right. Uh, it, it means to save. We, that's what we know. But but the word, if what would happen if you did something like Martha did here? If someone says, do you believe in Jesus? And you're like, yes. Are you talking about the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world, the resurrection and the life who's going to raise me from the dead one day? Yeah. I believe in him. Like the thing on that, right? We put more meat to it and it becomes instead of just a yes, it becomes a huge evangelical expression where you're packing in the gospel and you're, you're defining Jesus as who he truly is. Even in this day, in the day this was written, or in the day of Martha, they believed in Jesus to some degree. He was walking around. He was right in front of him. But was that saving belief? No, they had to believe all these other that he was God in the flesh. Today, many people say they believe in Jesus, but given the opportunity to define him, you often realize that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the real Jesus, right? So uh, I was thinking on this, though, yeah, how do we speak of Jesus to others? Instead of just leaving that word out there, put some meat on it, <laughs> like she does here. Wonderful witnessing opportunity. I also think on this, how do you speak of Jesus when you talk to Jesus? Uh, most of us might just say, Jesus. And that's absolutely fine. I don't want to take away from that. But at the same time, she could have done that as well. But yet she chose to say, Lord Christ, Son of God, the one who's coming into the world. And what does that do? It, I think it, it has a deepening effect on the one, acknowledging the one that you're talking to, you're submitting to. This is the Christ, the one who is not just man, but who is God, who has come into the world to provide salvation. Even using maybe the I 
I am statements. Sometimes as you talk to Jesus in your prayer, uh, I am, uh, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. I do believe in you. I know I will rise from the dead because you paid for my sins. But applying some of those things, uh, even in your own prayer life, because she's talking to Jesus. Jesus knew all this about her. And so if we say, well, Jesus knows my heart, but yet Martha chose to speak all these things. So I think there's a lot there. Just a great statement that she has. Uh, she, she says all this to him. And I think we could do this, do something like that as well, especially in a world today that defines him differently than the Bible does. Take a moment and if, if you get that opportunity or create that opportunity, put some meat to the bones there, defining who Jesus truly is. And even talking to Jesus to help deepen possibly your prayer life or acknowledging who you're praying to. Now her confession here is wonderful. Verse 27, it's a great passage you could memorize. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Uh, there's several others here in the book of John particularly. I'm just going to hit them, hit the highlights of these today. Uh, several other great confessions of faith that are recorded by John the Apostle. Uh, go back to, if you want to look at these in your Bible, you can. I have them on the screen as well. Uh, John 129. John the Baptist announces Jesus, and he is the great herald that is supposed to announce the Messiah, by saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you'll notice each one of these professions or confessions is just packed full of meat, packed full of good stuff here. It's the Lamb of God uh, that's going to take away the sin of the world. So far beyond uh, the sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, for Israel, or far beyond the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in the blood put on the outside of the door are far for a sacrifice just for that the tribes of Israel. This is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Uh, John 134. John the Baptist says, And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Another great profession of who Jesus truly is. Look at Nathaniel in chapter 1 of John. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Philip, John 1.45. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, another fun one here where Philip is announcing to Nathaniel uh, who, that they found the one. Instead of using the word Christ right here, he says, We found the one of whom Moses and the law wrote about and the prophets wrote about. And it's Jesus, uh, the son of Joseph. Uh, 442 of John chapter 4 uh, the Samaritan, so you remember him coming and speaking to the woman at the well and then speaking to the entire town as she gets excited about who Jesus truly is, that he is the Christ. And uh, we see their great statement. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And here you have Samaritans, the scum of society, according to the Jews of the day, who acknowledge that he is their Savior as well, the Savior of the world. And then, of course, Peter in John 6, 68 through 69, after the feeding of all the people, then all the people abandoning Jesus after he begins to teach, I am the bread of life, and they leave. And then Jesus asked, do you guys want to leave as well? And what does Peter say? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So long story short, Martha's profession 
falls right in line here with some great professions that are recorded by John. So who is Jesus? Well, you take the four titles that she put there. Excellent, right? Lord, Christ, Son of God, the one who's coming into the world. You go back through. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, he is the Son of God. He's the King of Israel. He's the Rabbi. He's the Son of God. He's the one that Moses spoke of in the law and the prophets wrote about. Savior of the world. Uh, and just, it's like, wow. It's just beautiful how these professions of faith, confessions of who he is, continue to build up. All right. Uh, go into verse 28 through 31 here. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 28 through 31. And we'll continue through the story. When, he, when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. All right, so long story short here, Mary uh, is... is, is is interrupted with her with the people that are around her consoling her that uh, Martha comes in and and it's interesting here uh, she doesn't say she doesn't say the Lord Christ the Son of God who's coming into the world is here notice what she says she says the teacher and here if you're keeping count she's up to five now five different titles that she's given Jesus in just this short paragraph here and and it's, it's most likely we don't know exactly why but they're the Jews that were visiting and we find out as we go through John chapter 11 there was some animosity and these there were some that were probably there for good reasons right reasons but there were also it was a mixed crowd and there were some there who hated Jesus and wanted to kill Jesus so she comes in and doesn't announce to everyone the Lord the Messiah the Son of God the one who's coming in the world is here but she goes directly to her sister and just says teacher is here and wants to see you wink wink <laughs> right it's like because they both acknowledged him as rabbi as teacher they submitted to him submitted to his authority and what they should believe as well so she introduces that hey the teacher is here and mary gets the point she gets up she takes off running everyone realizing she's running and and has been distraught and sad are thinking she's going to go to the tomb and that's going to be the kind of the the focal point of where she's running to to be upset but we find that that's not the case. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And again, she says the same thing that Martha said. Basically, both ladies acknowledging they had full faith that Jesus could heal him and he would not have died. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. All right, so just getting through the facts here, getting through the information, Mary comes to see where they laid him. They take him to where Lazarus is laid. And all this also we notice in verse 35, which in the English language, if you're a trivia person, is the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. And a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy wondering why Jesus wept. 
We don't have a lot there, but we do want to acknowledge the, the humanity of Jesus and that, that people around him are sad. People around him are crying. We do know from John chapter 11 that he loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. He was close to them. And is, it, is he weeping because Lazarus has died? It is possible, uh, all right? But also we know that he is going to raise him from the dead. And so it's, so it's, it's that's a possibility. There are other possibilities. Is he crying? Is he weeping? Because he sees the pain of those that he loves. Mary and Martha are crying and, and upset that they have lost their brother. Or is he weeping uh, as some that are there who maybe claim to be believers are weeping as those who are of the world and not not recognizing that there is life after death. We don't, a lot, we don't have a lot of detail there, all right? So we just don't know, but, but Jesus wept. And if anything, it shows that he is humanity. It also shows that he is not... Sometimes when you think of Jesus, you don't, you don't see the personality. And the same with some of the people in the Bible, because we don't get a lot of the details there. But we see that he's caring. He's compassionate. People around him are crying. He's mourning. They are mourning, right? And that's what we are supposed to do. When others mourn, what are you supposed to do? Rejoice? No, you're supposed to mourn. Or mourn when others mourn. Rejoice when others rejoice. And he, he feels their pain. He sees their pain. He weeps with them. Um, uh, so we don't have to be stoics when we do lose loved ones. And it is a hard thing to wrestle with. Everyone here has probably lost a loved one, a family member, a friend, etc., maybe even a believer. And you are comforted in the fact that they are in heaven. Uh, my dad's tombstone, literally on it, when I, when I go to, to see the site where my dad is buried, it says, it is not goodbye, it's see you later. And right now, that's, that's comforting. It's like, yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> that is true. And, but yet at the same time, uh, there is sorrow. There is sadness because you're here for some time without them, even though you will be together uh, after this life. But there is this time in between. So is it okay to cry at a funeral? Absolutely. And if someone ever says, why are you crying? You should be happy because they're in heaven. Say, Jesus wept. <laughs> Therefore, I can wait, weep, okay? It is totally okay to, to, to mourn that situation. Uh, verse 36 and 7. So the Jews said how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And here, just to stop there today, once again, we see that the Jews are going to have mixed opinions on Jesus still, even though he has performed so many signs, they still are saying that possibly he's, he's Satan himself, or possibly he, he's just a sinful man. And, and even here, there's doubt amongst uh, the Jews who are present on who he is and what he can accomplish. All right, And we'll get to some clarity on that here in a moment uh, next week as we go through the book, this chapter. Uh, in summary, we find here that Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life. He is not the resurrection and the life for everyone, but for those who believe in Him. And you must believe in Him while you are alive. And that is critical to the gospel. That's why we proclaim the gospel to the living and not to the dead. Right? Because they must repent. They must believe that Jesus is. And think of what Martha said here. He is Lord. He is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the one that has come into the world to bring salvation. Beautiful confession of faith there by her. And I hope it inspires us as well when we talk to others and when we talk to Jesus Christ ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. 
for sending Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, into the world to bring salvation. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who lived a perfect life that we could not live, who died on the cross and took the wrath, took the curse for us as our sins were placed on him and he bore the sins on the cross. Thank you that he is our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who comes to take away our sins. We thank you for sending Jesus to atone for our sins, to pay the price, to propitiate and to justify us and to sanctify us through his work. We thank you that we're not saved by our works because we can't do anything to even earn forgiveness of one sin. But we thank you for sending the one whose value was so infinite that he was able to pay for our sins upon the cross fully so that we can live this life knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that our eternity is secure and that we do rise and that even our bodies rise on the last day and that we will be in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. Help us to live and to face death knowing these truths and Lord may they not slip out of our mind help us to know these to to believe these and help people to see a difference in us and how we live because we have such assurance of knowing that the one we have believed in is the resurrection and the life